Please be seated. Good evening to you. Matthew chapter 9. Tonight, Sunday night, through the Scriptures, and uh, if you're here tonight and you don't have a Bible, you'll be fairly lost uh, without it, and so men are coming up the aisles right now, and uh, if you just, they've got Bibles, and if you wave to them, they'll get a Bible into your hands tonight, and then you can not only hear the Word of God, but also read along as well. We pick things up in Matthew chapter 9, verse 18, and just by way of remembrance, the uh, book of uh, Matthew is written by a tax collector who became a Christian. Uh, a man by the name of Levi became known as Matthew, renamed, so to speak, related to that. The focus of Matthew's gospel is upon the Jews, the nation of Israel. That's why there's so many quotations from the Old Testament in it, as Jesus would teach or as he would perform a miracle. And then Matthew would say, this, he said this because one of the prophets in the Old Testament said such and such. And so it's declaring to the nation of Israel that Jesus is their promised Messiah. And uh, Matthew, uh, Mark's gospel, emphasizes the servanthood of Jesus. It's kind of the person that has ADD. They like Mark. Uh, because there's not, it, it, comparatively speaking, there's not as much red letter in Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel isn't, uh, you know, it doesn't have the parables, it doesn't have the Sermon on the Mount, it doesn't have the Olivet Discourse, but it's just filled with action. Jesus being revealed as the fulfillment of the Scriptures as the promised Messiah in his doing, and so the focus is on his doing. Luke's gospel emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. Uh, John's gospel emphasizes his deity. All of the gospels are uh, complementary in this regard. They are all a record of Jesus' uh, birth, his life, uh, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. Sometimes people look at the gospels and they say, why are some things in one gospel and they're not in the other gospel and so forth? And it's never because the gospels are contradictory to one another. They are complementary toward one another. But there is a focus to each one of the gospels uh, by the Holy Spirit, and that's why certain things are emphasized in one and perhaps not emphasized or included in another. In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus is in the middle of performing uh, a series of ten miracles or uh, ten manifestations of himself to reveal to the nation of Israel that he is the Messiah that has been uh, promised uh, to them and miracles that only the Messiah could do and th that the Scriptures prophesied that he would do. And we kind of pick things up in the middle of that in verse 18. And while he, that is Jesus, spoke these things to him, them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live." The ruler that's referred to here is a ruler of the synagogue, and uh, Jesus is already in hot water with the religious leaders of his day, so it is very, very significant that a Jewish man in his position now comes to Jesus with a need in his life. If you have ever known people, and I know you've known uh, people that have been a part of a religious system. Uh, that doesn't quite lead you to Christ or personal relationship 
with the Lord, but they've invested. Here's a man who's invested his entire life in this understanding of the law and the prophets, that it's a means by which I can establish my own rela- relationship uh, and righteousness before God, independent of the Messiah. And yet here he hits a situation in his life where he is willing to publicly Despite his background and what his peers might think of him, he comes to Jesus with a need in his life and the need that he realizes that his religion cannot meet in his life, but only Jesus can is to raise his daughter from the dead who has now died. So how does Jesus reach religious people? And remember, the overwhelming majority of people in the world today are religious. This is a very religious world. And uh, the sex, drug, and rock and roll group, the secular group, the atheist, the agnostic, that's a minority in the world. The overwhelming majority of people in the world will come to faith in Christ and come into salvation out of a religious background, not out of a humanist background or an atheistic kind of background. And so how does God get through to them? What brings this kind of a person Uh, to Jesus, the willingness to now abandon what they've built their whole life and future upon, now to come to Christ. And that is when something occurs within our life that we realize my religion can't touch this. My religion can't change this. The only one that I know of that can impact this situation that I find myself in is Jesus. And I'll tell you, God bless this guy the humility that was required to lay down what he laid down and to come to Jesus and ask him publicly for help. This is a guy, he's special, and uh, something special is going to happen in, in his life. Everything will fail us in life except for Christ. Everyone will fail us in life except for God of the Bible and Jesus and God's Word. And so sooner or later, whether a person is forced to look at Jesus from a secular, coming out of a secular angle or a religious angle, both religion and secularism will fail. And ultimately we'll realize the only one that can bring satisfaction into my life, the only one that can provide the assurance of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the only one that can raise my daughter from the dead in this situation is Jesus. So ultimately it all fails and it ends up bringing people to the Lord. And so here he is in this place. I remember years ago, many, many years ago now, um, somebody handed me a cassette tape, so that gives you an idea uh, related to that. And it was a teaching by a man by the name of Arthur Blessed. And Arthur Blessed was a guy that kind of carried that cross all around the world. And Arthur Blessed was teaching on this uh, passage in, in this CD that I, uh, not CD, but the cassette tape that I had. He was teaching at a pastor's conference. And it was clearly a very Pentecostal pastor's conference. And it was one of those times where I would have loved to have been in the room because the anointing that was upon what he was saying was so powerful that it translated even onto the recording. I mean, you just had a sense that this guy is speaking as the oracle of God at this moment. So he's speaking at this conference, and he's talking about a situation that he ran into where he was speaking at a a gentleman's church, a pastor's church, who was uh, Pentecostal. 
And he said, uh, I taught that evening at the evening service, and he said, then after the service, the lines formed, and he said, you know, we cast demons out of all kinds of people, and we cast the, you know, get, prayed for healing for people for this kind of sickness and that kind of sickness. He said, there's nothing we didn't pray for. I mean, every cancer, every kind of thing was brought before and us, and we, we prayed for him. And then uh, that evening, the pastor was driving Arthur to the airport so he could catch a flight to uh, another part of the country, and Arthur said, uh, boy, I didn't get a chance to meet your, your wife or your family uh, tonight, and uh, just you and all. Uh, what happened to her? And the pastor said, well, she's homesick, and uh, she couldn't come to the meeting. She's too sick and all, and the pastor felt bad. Here he is, you know, claiming healing is everybody's right and all of this. And Arthur didn't glom on to all of that. He didn't believe all of that. But this is what the guy was doing in pronouncing healing and all of these kind of things. And uh, Arthur looked at the pastor, and he said, listen, he said, don't worry. When your theology fails you, Jesus will never fail you. And here is this guy, and he knew full well that his theology had failed him right inside of his home, and yet he's going to carry on the charade within the church. And yet, when our theology, wrong theology, fails us, Jesus will never fail us. And here's this realization, I better get this need concerning my daughter to him. And so Jesus arose, and he followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly, a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. And for she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned around, and when she saw her, he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. We know from the other Gospels that the physical ailment that this woman had was a, a flow of blood from her body, uh, doubtless a menstrual flow that did not stop for 12 years. So you think about that, and think about that kind of a loss of blood, not once a month, but I mean a continual for 12 years. The drain out of the body, the lack of iron, she, we're told in other Gospels that she spent all of the money that she had going to doctors, trying to find someone who could heal her of this flow from her body. The interesting thing about all of this is that it wasn't just that she was dealing with the physical side of the particular uh, disease or the particular ailment that she had, but there was a religious stigma associated with all of this as well. Because uh, a woman, while on her period under the Old Testament, anything that she would touch would become ceremonially unclean. So for 12 years, any person she would touch would become ceremonially unclean. Anything that she touched would become ceremonially unclean. If we don't understand that, we don't understand the depths that this woman of her desperation that she's coming to Jesus with here in, in this uh, circumstance. And so here she is. This is all she's known and, and been isolated as, as a result of of the, the flow that she has from her life. She spends everything that she has. She has no other hope 
but the hope of hearing that Jesus is able to heal people, she sneaks up on him because we know from, again, the other gospels that there's quite a crowd around him at this time. She's pushing and shoving her way through the crowd, which means she has rendered everyone that she has touched ceremonially unclean. So when Jesus turns around and says, who touched me, and she confesses that it was her, and what her ailment was, then everybody would have realized she's rendered us ceremonially unclean. So it's a very difficult situation that she is in, and she comes in faith, touches the hem of his garment, and she is healed. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And a beautiful picture not only of her healing, but her particular uncleanness is a picture of the fact that Jesus was not, was not and is not only able to heal her of the physical ailment that she had, but that he is able to cure and to heal and cleanse any of us from any spiritual uncleanness that any of us have. And that's the whole idea. And sin in our life, other things in our life, they render us ceremonially unclean to other people, uh, to God, and Jesus is able to come in, forgive us of our sins, cleanse us, make us into a new person, and, and we are no longer rendering people unclean ceremonially or un, uh, otherwise in our contact with them. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus does, not only in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm. Aren't you glad that he has cleansed you, made you into a new creation, and now we're no longer defiling every person that comes into contact with us, but endeavoring to bless them. One of the beautiful things about this is there in verse 22, uh, Jesus calls her daughter. He refers to her as daughter. She hadn't been called anything but uh, unclean for 12 years. And here is Jesus. He knows he's going to heal her. He knows he's going to take care of this situation in her body. He doesn't need to call her daughter. He doesn't need to use, and the word is a term of affection. It is the term that a father uses for their daughter and for the daughter to feel the embrace of the term. That's the word that he uses uh, for the woman here. He calls her daughter. In the minds of everyone around her for 12 years, she isn't a human being. She is her disease. She is her uncleanness. And now for the first time in 12 years, someone publicly refers to her as daughter. It's important for us to realize that behind every diagnosis of every kind of illness that a person can have, they are never their illness. They are a person behind that diagnosis. It is a person that is behind that disease and behind that illness. And every single person in the world that is unclean because of sin, that behind that uncleanness there is a person there. And Jesus takes and deals with her, not only with her need, but then speaks to her as a person. And it's so important for us as we deal with people and we come into contact with them as members of the body of Christ, and we're going to come into contact with a lot of uncleanness in the world, just like was clinging to our body and flowing from our body at one time before we became Christians, that behind all of the sin behind all of the shame, behind all of the addiction, behind all of the humiliation, 
There is a person behind all of that. And Jesus recognized that and treated her like a person, spoke to her in that way, and I'm sure it was as powerful in her life as the healing that Jesus brought to her life as well. This world is getting very calloused in its treatment, people's treatment of one another. We're becoming savages. I don't need to tell you that. You cannot indoctrinate an entire generation of people in the Western world, including the United States of America, in the telling them and us that we are the most important people in the whole world. And this uh, exaltation of selfishness and selfism and everybody else is just a part of some grand play that I'm in. Thank you for being on stage. Thank you for playing your part. But all of this is really about me. Well, once you get everybody buying into that kind of thing, you're going to have some real problems. And there's going to start to be some clashes on, on that, that kind of a thing. And then as we see the world moving further and further away from the Lord, from the things of the Lord, we see people in greater and greater bondage, marked by greater and greater uncleanness. But to remember there is a human being all the way down underneath it, not to be put off by the person, by their uncleanness. There's a kid in there that lost their first tooth and put it under their pillow hoping for a dime. There's a kid in there that fell off of their bike the first time they tried to learn to ride their bike. It may be way down inside there, but there's a human being in there. I think today it's heartbreaking. I, you know, read just like you do about all of this bullying that's going on in cyberspace and the use of technology and all. Uh, Bullying has been going on forever, and it was certainly a part of Uh, my world when I was in junior high and high school and bullying, it goes on right on into uh, adult life for sure. But, you know, today we see the kids are committing suicide because they're bullied. And like never before, two or three or five people using some kind of means of electronics can feel like a thousand people are against me. It can feel like a million people are against me or, or hate me. And, and this, all of these things that are forgetting that this isn't just somebody the way somebody looks or some quirk that they have, but there's a human being created by God in the image of God uh, behind what we hear and what we see. And Jesus saw that, and I think it's a beautiful lesson for us as well. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and he saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, make room for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And then they ridiculed him. These were professional mourners. This is a Jewish leader of a synagogue. And in those days when somebody would die that was especially important to you and you wanted the community to know how, much, how dear they were to the family, you could hire professional mourners who would then mourn and wail and make all of these noises and all. And so this is the crowd that is there. They knew when somebody was dead and when somebody wasn't dead. This was their profession. So they know this girl is dead. And Jesus comes in and he said to them, make room for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him for such a statement. They knew that she was dead. 
But when the crowd was put outside, he went in, excuse me, and he took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report went out into all that land. And so uh, Jesus comes in, and he uh, heals her. Beautiful picture as this being brought out in chapters 8 and 9 of his uh, authority, these marks of him as a Messiah. This speaks of his authority over death. Never trust in a God who, number one, cannot explain to you the origin of death in the human condition, and number two, cannot provide you with a victory over death. And only Jesus is able to do that. Beautiful picture. Aren't you glad for his authority over death? Aren't you glad that he has conquered death for you? Well, we believe in him. We live. We will never, ever die, the Bible says. His victory and his authority over death. Of course, the uh, greatest demonstration of it is ultimately going to occur in his resurrection from the dead. But here we see these hints of his authority in his public ministry as well. I think that one of the things that's important to notice here is that when he comes to uh, the house uh, the, uh, of the ruler's, uh, the ruler's house here to minister to his daughter, these uh, people were ridiculing him for speaking faith in the situation. And it says in verse 25, but when the crowd was put outside, and we know more clearly in the other gospels that he put them outside. And uh, the importance in a crisis or a situation that we find ourselves in life to put out the scorners from any situation that we find ourselves in. Jesus is so beautifully protective of the faith of that father. He knows what he's going to do. But he knows that what this mocking and this ridicule, it's not going to affect him, but it's going to affect the faith of this ruler. And so he puts them out of the room. Jesus was protective of his faith. He's protective of our faith. And we need to be protective of our faith. And when we find ourselves in these kind of situations where we have a promise from God in his word that God is going to do this something in this situation, even though he hasn't done it yet, and I can't see it yet. And then all of the mockers, all of the scorners rise up, whether inside of our own heart or outside of our own lives. It'll never happen. God is never going to do that. And here's the importance of then putting out any unbelief from our hearts at that time. Protect your faith. There are times I, I... I love God's Word. I'm always in His Word. And if I'm not reading it, I'm listening to someone who's teaching it and, and worship music and all of these things of sowing to the Spirit and all of that. It's, um, it helps me. <laughs> I'll just leave it there. So any, anyway. And then you hit those times in your life where... This is a mess. This is a biggie. This is one of maybe the top three or four that you're going to face in your life in terms of a crisis of faith. And you got this little promise of God over here, and it seems like it's dangling by a thread. And everything, including the entire demonic realm, is laughing at you for your faith. 
and the importance in times like that to take and dig into the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. To put on those Bible study tapes and sow to the Spirit and put on that praise music to sow to the Spirit. Protect your faith. The answer to the prayer, the answer to the promise is coming, but we have to protect our faith between where we are and ultimately that thing happening. And I love the fact that Jesus was protective of their faith. He's protective of our faith as well, and, and we should be the same in, in our own lives and do it in that way. And when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of Davis was, David was a reference to the fact that they believed him to be the Messiah. The Messiah in the Old Testament Scriptures was promised that he would be a descendant of uh, David. So they're acknowledging him as the Messiah, have mercy upon us. And when he had come into the house, the blind man came to him, and Jesus said, do you believe that I am able to do this? The mercy that they're asking for, of course, is to receive their sight. And they said, yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, uh, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, see that you, no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all of the country. So here is his healing of their blindness. Beautiful picture uh, spiritually of the fact that he is able not only to heal of a physical blindness, but the spiritual blindness that all, all of us have before we come to know Christ. And so he performs this wonderful miracle, his authority in this way demonstrated. Interesting in verse 30 that he tells them not to tell anybody about the miracle that he just done in his life. So there were times he did miracles and he, would, uh, he wouldn't put that prohibition on people. Other times, he would do a miracle in their life, and he would give a, a prohibition like this, say, now listen, keep this to yourself, keep it between you and me, and don't tell anyone else. And they, and we can look at it and, uh, and, and, and understand verse 31, where they then departed, didn't heed his, his instruction there, and they just began to tell everybody about it. But when the Lord tells us to keep something between us and Him, there's a reason for it. Probably by them spreading the news of what He had just done, they had probably made Jesus' life a little bit harder in terms of the crowds, in terms of the ability to get from one place to the other, the next place that He was going to uh, want to go to. And so for whatever reason, He tells them, don't do that. And so if the Lord says, don't do something, the, important, the importance then of heeding that, even if we don't understand it. There are things that God does in our life as Christians that are only for us and Him. They're only between us and Him. They're never to become a part of a testimony. They're never to be shared with somebody else. Maybe 90% of our Christian life is intended to be shared as a witness to other people. But God can do things in our life, and He can say things to us that are then supposed to be kept between us and Him. And when He does that, there's a reason for it, and it ought to be taken seriously and, 
and hated. And then they went out, and behold, they brought to him a man mute and demon-possessed. And so he, he's got the physical problem of being mute. Uh, the, the, that's the symptom problem that he has. His core problem, his real deep problem, is that he's demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute then spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, it was never like, seen like this in Israel. And then the, everybody's rejoicing. You can imagine, I mean, how exciting it would be to see something like that happen, not only to see this power encounter that's occurring here, Jesus' victory in it over the demonic realm, but then to see a, a human being set free from demonic possession. And so everybody's excited, but the Pharisees said he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. He's doing it by demonic power. And Jesus is going to address this a little bit more uh, fully later on, and we'll save it for that time. But it is amazing how uh, dug in certain people can be not to believe in Jesus or to give him any credit or to acknowledge his power or his position no matter who he is, no matter what it is that he says or he does. And it's a very, never a bad reflection on Jesus. Always a very sad reflection upon the person and uh, as upon the Pharisees here. And then Jesus went out about uh, in all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness. I like that word, every, and every disease among the people. So here he goes. He's going into all of these cities. They're bringing out everyone who has a cold, to who has cancer, to who has a deformed leg or whatever it might be. And here's this incredible demonstration of his power and of his love as he is uh, healing all of the people. Tremendous time in his ministry. How exciting uh, for the people. But when Jesus saw the multitudes, and of course the more that he did this kind of thing, then the more people who came from all directions in order to receive his healing power. So now the size of the group that is coming to him is in, uh, spoken of as a multitude. As he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And that was Jesus' attitude toward the multitude, toward the multitude of people. And what were they bringing to him? Were they bringing sacks of gold? Were they, you know, handing him thank you cards or things like that? They were coming in all their need. They're coming in all their need. And they're bringing all of it to him. The need for healing, the need for demons to be cast out. I mean, they're just coming open, honest, all of their troubles, all of their problems, and they're just coming to him. And the crowd is just a gigantic multitude. And Jesus, his reaction to it wasn't, oh, here's a bunch of people with more pro I mean, I'd no more do this, and then a whole, you know, they're multiplied by 10 coming again. And that wasn't his heart toward the people or toward their need. It says that he was moved with compassion for them. And again, as we look at the world that we live in today, and it's a messy world. It's a messy world. And it's easy to become frustrated with it. The direction that it's going in, the decisions that are being made, 
and uh, political systems and the decisions that are made on national and international levels and all of these uh, kind of things. And it's so easy to uh, lose a heart of compassion toward people in the midst of it. So the world is absolutely a mess. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't, you know, uh, resist immoral laws and these kind of things, but what we must be careful of is in the midst of all of this is how we see people and that we do not as Christians uh, lose our compassion for the multitudes. We were once among them. We were once as every bit a slave to sin as ever they were. Every bit is enslaved and in bondage to fear and hopelessness and all of the messiness that they were bringing to Jesus as, the, as we were, as these, uh, the, the world, people in the world still are. And there's this goofy thing, and I hate it about myself, and, and I don't think I'm alone in it, but here the Lord comes into our life. He cleans us up a little bit, makes us presentable and all. And then sometimes we want to sniff at the crowd that is the crowd that we came out of and look down on them. And so we look at people today and we look at the messiness of people. It's not just their physical illnesses, but look at the bondage to sin that is going on. Look at the accessibility to sin like never before in the history of the world because of how small the world has become and how technologically uh, advanced that it has become. And so here is, is, is the, the addiction to sin, the addiction to not only you know, talking about the physical needs within a life, but all of this other kind of messiness and to look at people and to see them and all of their need and to look at them with compassion. They are weary, they are scattered, they are in the condition that they are in because they are sheep without a shepherd. Well, what's the solution to that? to become sheep with a shepherd. But how are they going to find out about that shepherd? Except uh, we don't look down upon them with disdain, but again, look through all of the baggage, look through all of the darkness, all of the addictions, all of the messiness to the person that is way down deep inside there and have compassion upon them, remembering when we were there as well, and then telling them how to come to the Savior, the only one who is greater than all of the need that we can bring to him. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That is always true in human history. It's true 2,000 years ago. It's true today. The harvest is always plentiful. You picture, here we are, we live in uh, a very uh, agricultural area of California, but maybe a better illustration would be some kind of a wheat farm out in Kansas. And here you have this wheat field that goes on for miles and miles and miles. And it's fully mature. Everything that's required in order for, to bring it to maturity, in order to then harvest it, all of it has been done. But there's nobody to harvest the wheat. Imagine how heartbreaking and frustrating to the farmer who owns that wheat. The field is white under harvest, but I don't have enough laborers to bring that harvest in. 
And what is true of a field like that physically is always true of the harvest field in the world spiritually. It is always white under harvest. I am one of the many people who is living in the year 2016 that looks at the world that I am living in and I am praying for one of two things because I see only one of two things being the answer to the problems that we are facing. That is either number one, the rapture, or number two, revival. And I pray for revival all of the time. And there can be those extraordinary seasons when God comes in, busts through everything, and does this thing where everybody knows this is a revival of God and people are being brought into the kingdom of God in great numbers. But we must never ever as Christians look and say, I'm going to pray for revival, I'm going to wait for revival to get into the harvest field because even before the revival and after the revival, the fields are white unto harvest. The harvest truly is plentiful. The only reason we're in this room tonight, not in heaven as Christians, is because that is true. The harvest is always plentiful, but it is the laborers who are few, and there's always too few of them. And so Jesus told the disciples here what you should do about that. He said, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So what's the solution to it? Guilt people into Christian service, etc., etc. No, that's not what it is. It is to stop and pray to the Lord and that the Lord would send out laborers into the harvest. Jesus is very, very uh, clever in all of this. And he, when he gives prayer as the answer to the need for more laborers to be involved in the spiritual harvest in the world, he knows that when that prayer gets an- prayed, that he's going to answer that prayer. But he also knows that no one with a true heart for the Lord and has a concern for the harvest and has a concern for people If a person prays for laborers and to go into the harvest field, they will always then ultimately find themselves also being a labor in that uh, harvest field. So you can't pray to the Lord and discuss the need for more laborers very long without soon becoming fully available to the Lord as a laborer in the field. And that's exactly what's going on here, and that's exactly uh, what happens. And Jesus is going to, here in just a few moments as we get into chapter 10, he's going to send these disciples, these 12 apostles of his, out into that uh, harvest. And so pray for laborers, and pretty soon you become a laborer. And it is important to realize that for each of us as Christians, we ought to be involved in some way and the expansion of the kingdom of God in this world in some way that the kingdom of God is expanding by virtue of the fact that we are alive and serving the Lord. So here is this great harvest field that he speaks to them uh, about, and then it leads the way into chapter 10. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out. If the need is so great, Jesus isn't, you know, can't be in all of the places that he wants to be all at once. So he, kind of, he gives this power to them uh, to cast out evil spirits, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. For Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, 
John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and uh, Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labius, whose surname is Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So here he's got them praying for laborers, and then the next thing you know, they're being set out into uh, the harvest field. It's interesting in verse 1 that uh, the disciples are referred to, the apostles are, as his 12 disciples in verse 1, and then in verse 2, they're referred to as the 12 apostles. They're the same group of, of people. The word disciple, it means learner. It means a follower. And everyone, no matter what our area of service or calling upon our life is, we're always a learner uh, before we become an apostle or become whatever God wants to call us uh, uh, into. So there's always that relationship with the Lord, growing in that relationship with Him. So they, He refers to them as disciples. He refers to them then as apostles. But no matter what God calls us to do, no matter what position He puts us into as His people, we should never stop being a disciple. We should never, ever stop learning uh, about the things of the Lord, learning and growing in our calling. We are, the, being a disciple is mentioned first, and then being an apostle. We are first and foremost a disciple of Jesus, and always growing in our relationship with Him, learning about Him and, and His calling uh, before we are whatever it is that He ultimately uh, calls us to do uh, for Him. And then in uh, the uh, verse uh, uh, 5 here, these 12 Jesus sent out, and he commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. In chapter 10 here, it's a, it, it, Jesus is speaking to them about a very specific ministry that he's calling them to at that time in his public ministry. But within chapter 10, there are tremendous ministry principles uh, that are contained in it from one end uh, to the other. These um, uh, these principles that God gives, ministry principles that laborers in, the, in God's harvest uh, need to know. When he calls here in verse 1, and he, he calls these 12 these, uh, to uh, minister for him, and he calls the disciples here, and, and he gives them the power, and he gives them authority to do what it is that he's called them to do, it speaks to us of the fact that God's callings are always his enablings, that whatever God calls us to do, he will also enable us to do. He calls these disciples, he, he calls them in way over their head. They can no more do what he is calling them to do than be the man in the moon. But he calls them to do this, and then he empowers them to do what it is that he has called them to do. The calling is everything. The calling is everything in the Christian life. Whatever it is that he calls us to do, whatever he speaks to you about and says, I want you to do this, this is how I want to use your life, he will then always add to your life whatever is necessary for you to be successful for his glory in that situation. His calling is always the guarantee of success. But we have to remember that it is success defined 
on his terms, not the definition of success in the United States of America or even within American Christianity, but how he defines success. We notice in verses 2 through 4 here where he gives the names of the specific apostles here, we recognize a second ministry principle, and that is that God chooses uh, ordinary people by and large to do his work. And how in the world does he get away with advancing the most important thing going on in the world, the advancement of the kingdom of God? How does he get away with it by calling, by and large, the most ordinary and ill-equipped people to do it? He gets away with it because we are ordinary people with an extraordinary God. And when God uses ordinary people, and these disciples were very, very ordinary people from very, very ordinary backgrounds with very, very ordinary educations, very ordinary life experience, and they're going to be successful because they are serving a great God who has called them. And, and so this beautiful, beautiful uh, truth there that God calls ordinary people, and the reason that it's so important for us to realize that is that when God calls us, we, the, one of the first consciousnesses we have of God calling us to do something is how utterly inadequate we are to do what he's calling us to do. Well, if we were adequate to do it, and then we did it, who would get the glory? I would get the glory. And I would want a trophy, and I would want, uh, I would wear pins, and I would wear a big crown, and I mean, I'd be impossible to live with. But when he calls someone like me to do something like he's called me to do, or he calls you to do what it is that he's called you to do, he gets all of the glory. And you know what? That's not just a big problem for the world to try and understand. Christians stumble over that. And it's important for us to realize when we look at who God calls and puts in these various places within the body of Christ and even who he makes the pastor of a church or their elders or their deacons or their ushers or their whoever, and to look and say, what pathetic shape that church is in. What a desperate condition that they're in. And you look at them, and the, uh, and the only reason anything succeeds is because God adds his blessing to the calling. But sometimes we get frustrated. And I look at the church today, I'll tell you, it's crazy. I'm, I'm glad I'm not starting. I'm glad I got 30 years uh, uh, of water under the bridge, and I'm not starting out today. The star factor, the body of Christ, the superstars, the attraction to superstars. I'll only go to a church if the guy is this and the worship team is this and they can hit every note and they can wow the living daylights out of you and all of this kind of thing. And here we are, you know, taking and, and a person could put on a show from natural talent related to that. I'm not saying that super talented people aren't used by God as well. But today... I mean, we are being indoctrinated away from stopping and looking and saying, that is a very ordinary person, but I hear God through her. I hear, I am led in worship through that voice and through how they conduct themselves in playing the instrument or in the teaching of the Word of God. I think one of the things that's being lost today is a discernment among God's people 
between knowing the difference between an emotional experience and a spiritual experience. And because there is a losing of that discernment, then all of this other thing then becomes required to gain the attention of God's people and then to hold the attention of God's people rather than that is a simple human being, but I learn from God when that person teaches the Word of God. It's a goofy time. There's a lot going on right now in professing Christianity. There's wonderful churches, great churches. I'm not putting the whole thing down, but there's a move here that Christians are participating in and unwittingly, and I think it's a very, very uh, dangerous thing that is happening because, you know, one of the things that happened to me is and in, in, gave me any hope of attempting to try and start a Calvary Chapel or a church or be a pastor was Chuck Smith. And Chuck Smith would get up and, and I... And he would get up and he would teach the Word and he would teach it so simply and he would teach it so clearly that he, he birthed within the hearts of thousands of men and women and men in terms of starting churches, birthed within their heart the idea that I think I could do that. I think I could maybe read the Scripture, explain what's going on and what it has to do with our life. I think I'm going to take a step of faith. And he gave us hope for that. In today's superstar, super this, super lights, camera, action, all of that, I would if I had been born again at that time and trying to step, take a step in my calling it, 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 today rather than back in those days, I think I'd still be working for the phone company unless God did something dramatic because i just look at it and say, there's no way I can be that. There's no way that I can do that. So we have to be careful in God's calling upon our own lives. He calls, by and large, very simple people like you and I who have an extraordinary God that He is going to pour forth from our lives and He's going to make a difference in the world as a result of it. And all of us feel inadequate for the calling. We all want to talk God out of His choice of us. I think Gail Irwin said, the only thing that makes me wonder about God is his choice of me. That's a healthy humility. And I think that's one of the reasons when a person feels that humility, that God then chooses them. I want to say, I'm not, I'm not interested in bashing the body of Christ or, or that, that kind of a thing, or developing certainly within any of us a critical attitude toward other people. I just want you to know that when God makes it so clear to you, and He will make it so clear to you, how He wants you to spend your life for His kingdom, that He chooses ordinary people, and you can't use that as an excuse. Moses tried to, lots of people tried to, and God doesn't take those excuses. He knows what He's getting when He got you and He called you, and we have to be faithful to that. Don't let your ordinariness of whatever in terms of how you look at things and in assessing even yourself to kind of talk you out of it. Obey his call at all costs. There are wonderful things on the other side of it. Then we get to chapter, I mean to verse 5 here. And these uh, 12 Jesus sent out and he commanded them saying, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. And he goes on and speaks in verse 5, but go rather to the lost sheep 
of the house of Israel. Now here he's speaking specifically of their uh, specific commission that he's given to them. Uh, These apostles were to go forth, they were to preach to the house uh, of Israel that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people were to be given the first opportunity to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Of course, for us, when God sends us out, Whatever he, however he decides to use us, uh, we preach the gospel to everyone, Jew, Gentile, the entire world. Now, one of the things that can uh, wipe us out in our Christian service, and he's talking about Christian service here in this passage, is wrong expectations concerning the ministry. And here Jesus takes and he makes it clear to them and to us what we should expect in our service to the Lord so that we are not stumbled by the reality of our Christian service once we get into it. And so this passage is a great kind of um, somebody sitting down with us and saying, all right, here's your calling, here's what I want you to do, this is what it means to live for me in the world as a Christian, and then to sit down and say, all right, let me give you a few pointers before you uh, go into this. I like to read World War II um, history and, uh, and currently reading a, a, a book as I'm able to get to it by Anthony Beaver on the, on the subject of, of the entirety of World War II, both uh, theaters of operation. But he brought out, as most people do who write about these situations, that um, uh, the, that, oh, what, what did he say? <laughs> But, oh, that when these new, when there would be these heavy casualties in these battles among the Allied forces, uh, including the United States forces, and they would bring in these new men and, and fill these ranks that uh, so often the more seasoned veterans of combat wouldn't have anything to do with them. They wouldn't teach them, they wouldn't instruct them, uh, give them the tips for hope for survival, because the battles at that particular point in World War II were so intense that they just thought, why am I going to waste my breath? These guys are going to be dead in a day, so why waste my time? And, I mean, you imagine being put into a place where death is so real, uh, life and death is so fragile, things are so intense that you look at three young guys that come alongside you heading into Guadalcanal or heading into taking over Italy and and the conquest of Italy, and you look and you say, I'm not going to spend a minute's time because they'll be dead before the next battle is over. And yet, how important just somebody speaking a few tips to us would be not only to hold on to a job in our culture, but to survive a battle. And Jesus uh, gives that to us here in the passage. It's interesting in, in that vein that uh, on uh, the D-Day, when we took and um, opened up that second front against the, uh, not, uh, the Nazi empire, and, and came in on Fran- uh, against uh, on the shores of France with Canadian forces, with uh, British forces, United States forces, and all. And when the soldiers in the American sector on, Ameri- on Omaha Beach, when they hit that beach 
and it was such a killing zone, and they made their way to the wall and, and then engaged in the battle to try and get a foothold there uh, at Omaha Beach, that later on, when the commanders of those forces then were able to assess the situation, 90% of the soldiers never fired a bullet. They never fired one shot in that battle. They froze. They froze. Nothing to do with their bravery, had everything to do with their training. They were inadequately trained, and the officers realized that immediately and began an entire new way of training American soldiers for these kind of battles. They recognized they had failed the soldiers by preparing them adequately for the fear and all of the different things that they were going to encounter in live combat. And they corrected that problem and then sent them into battle even better prepared. You say, he's just rambling at this point. Maybe I am. But I know I'm not going further in this passage because I have a clock in front of me. But I leave that as kind of a closing and an introduction to a sermon that's going to be a week from now, but the importance of what it is that Jesus now does in this chapter. And we'll put a pause on it right there, and we'll look forward to receiving that same kind of instruction in our hearts to survive the intensity of the battle that is called Christian service. Because in Christian service, when we go after it the way that God wants us to go after it, you will die. It will be the death of us. Christian service is one long, slow, daily, public death. That's what it is, and that's what it's designed to be. Now, the wonderful thing about this death And any death associated with Jesus is that it always gives way to resurrection, always gives way to a wonderful life and and a, a wonderful way to live. And so the applications on a spiritual level are every bit as significant as anything on a physical level relating to physical war or anything else like that. And, of course, the stakes are infinitely higher. Let's have the worship team uh, come forward and let's stand and we'll close in prayer. If you're here this evening and you don't know Jesus Christ, you've never trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins, we'd love to pray with you to receive him as your Savior tonight and begin the relationship with God that you have been created for and for God to bring you into the glorious life that it took the death of his son to be able to provide to you. We'll be up in front. love to answer your questions and pray with you. Nobody gets to heaven by being in church. We get into heaven by a moment in time, trusting in the Savior that God has sent into the world to provide us with the forgiveness of our sins. And Jesus is that Savior. If you need prayer for anything tonight, anything that we've talked about, anything that we haven't talked about, anything that's going on in your life tonight, and you want to know, hey, somebody, I want somebody to call me daughter, whatever the equivalent of that is. I want someone to know there's a real human being all the way under all of this and someone to lay a hand on me and to pray for me. We'd be glad to do that, to lift up any need in your life tonight. Take advantage of the opportunity. Mike, would you close us?